Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this wild aisle writing cast. I have with me, me, for a solo cast today. That's right, you're going to be listening to me rambling on into the microphone for this wild aisle crash course. This is going to be the first one. I'll need to do more because there are too many topics to cover, but what I wanted to do today is to go over all of my thoughts after having such lovely conversations with my fellow authors to give you a rundown on what I've learned through those discussions. But before we get into it, before we begin, as is tradition, it is time to shill. So if you are listening to this podcast, roundabouts when it comes out, I want to direct you to my website, as always, wildislet.com. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is my Kickstarter campaign. Uh, yes, it's still going on. We're about halfway through and pretty far from our goal. So if you want to help me, one way that you could do that is to consider donating as little as a dollar. It'll get you uh, a shout out on a video. If we're able to reach our goal. $5 you get on the backers list and there are more rewards on there. So go check it out. Um, the link, there's a big picture on wildisleit.com. And while you're there, uh, I also want to direct you to the uh, essays and the stories and excerpt pages. I've just revamped those, and I'm going to try to be posting to those each week, um, at least one of them, if not both. So expect to see a new story and a new essay biweekly on top of the blog post, which you can see, again, at wildowlet.com. While you're there, also, you can check out my novel, One Smoke Broken, and hopefully soon enough, if we can get those covers from the Kickstarter campaign, I'll have the Tales from the Labyrinth coming out as well. And lastly, if you are an author and you have a manuscript that you're working on, I advise you to check out the Wild Isle style guide. It's in the editing section of my website. I offer a line editing service is really what it is. And it's also a bit of education. So what I do is I run through with you the same things my mentors and professors went through with me in grad school, except it's much, much more affordable to hire me to get you through a manuscript um, and then for you to take off on your own, right? So you, if you want to see what that's all about, uh, send me a query at wildislet.com slash editing, um, and I'll see if we can work together and sharpen your manuscript and develop your style, your personal writing style and voice as an author. All right, without further ado, we will get into this Wild Isle crash course. So what we're going to cover are the basics of, let's say, or the basic elements of writing fiction. Uh, we're going to talk about genre, plot, POV, and perspective, setting, character, and theme. We're not going to talk about style, though that's very important, but I'm going to have to have a whole podcast on that on its own. It just, there's way too much that goes into uh, considering style when it comes to prose, uh, so we just don't have time today. We're probably going to be spending most of our time talking about genre and maybe theme, or maybe that'll be the shortest, who knows, but let's go ahead and get into it. So genre. This is going to be perhaps the most controversial of all of my, let's say, conclusions that I've come to. But uh, I, I started out questioning the validity of genre. And the reason why is when it is used in uh, a contemporary sense, it essentially has no essence. It doesn't really refer to any particular thing. When you try to describe your own work, 
in terms of genre, oftentimes we end up confusing potential readers more than we communicate to them what is actually in your work. Too many of the genre categories uh, cross over with one another and contain things which you do not want to be communicating to your potential readers that your book contains if it does not in fact contain them. So I, uh, in a conversation with Brad uh, for our very first writing cast, talked about genre. And through the course of that, I actually concluded that there is a potential essence to which we can, you know, describe with genre. And I think that that is the telos of fiction, right? So what is telos? Telos uh, is an Aristotelian concept. Um, It's essentially the end of a thing. By end, it means it's purpose. But I don't like the word purpose because people get caught on the subjectivity. So let's use the word function instead, right? So the question is, what is the function of a particular work of fiction on the reader, right? Uh, And why do I want to plant the essence there? Well, the reader is a you know, uh, a human being, an agent, uh, and a biological agent, it has particular emotions, we have particular emotions, and we can act on them. Now, people are different, and they respond to the same text differently. But that merely makes genre an inexact science, much like that of medicine, as opposed to chemistry. Now, with chemistry, you can combine particular chemicals, and you get the same response over and over and over again. Not exactly the true with medicine. Uh, different medicines, or rather the same medicine, uh, will affect different people slightly differently, sometimes very differently. But through the course of testing, we can figure out which medicines most often have the effect that we want with the minimal side effects that we don't want, and we can use it usefully, right? So medicine can serve a particular end. It has a function, has many functions. Um, It's not perfectly accurate, but it is good enough. That is what I think genre is. And through the course of defining the genres, what I want to try to do is not reinvent the wheel. I want to use concepts that we already talk about when we talk about literary analysis to define what genres would exist by this criteria of telos. And I've come up with, looks like six here, right? So they are in short, comedy, tragedy, thriller, horror, metaphysical and erotica. And I want to explain why I picked out these ones in particular as genres being the function of a work of fiction on, again, the reader, which is a biological human being. So each of these genres corresponds to a particular emotional state that could be invoked in the reader. Comedy is elation. This is positive emotion. This is something that is acting on the dopaminergic system, right? A comedy makes us laugh or it makes us cheer or it makes us happy because the ending is positive. We have that positive emotion. We are drawn toward it. Um, This is absolutely a biological system in us, right? If you eat food that you like, uh, really right up to the point where you eat it, you get the most, but you still get it while you're eating it. You get a dopamine response, right? So that is something that's biological and and you can invoke that uh, in a story. You could have a story that its primary purpose is to invoke that, though it may do other things. Tragedy, on the other hand, uh, works with sorrow, negative emotion. 
This is a bit more controversial because we don't really know if our research into serotonin is any good, but let's assume that it is, right? So you keep serotonin so you don't feel awful. Um, and a tragic story plays upon the feelings of sorrow, it plays upon uh, perhaps anguish, despair, um, those type of emotions. And typically with a tragedy, we use that um, in order to invert it with catharsis, right? So this is a bit of a tangent, but it's important to understand so you understand what a tragedy is. You experience the negative emotions that a work of fiction gives you with tragedy so that you can experience catharsis. This is a relief from a kind of um, existential dread, and you get this relief because through experiencing those negative emotions of somebody else, you learn how they came to experience those negative emotions and you learn how you can avoid it. And you also learn that there is some type of order in the world, right? When you see someone rightfully punished, which they are in a tragedy for some uh, tragic flaw that they do not overcome, then you say, okay, when you have a flaw and you don't overcome it, you get punished, but you get punished because you didn't overcome it. It's not random and arbitrary. So though I really wanted this hero, this tragic hero, to overcome their flaw, and they didn't, and they met a tragic end. I have gotten something out of experiencing this negative emo negative emotion, just like you do when you make a mistake, right? And that provides that sense of order in the world, which lets you understand your place in the world and how you can act in it. And so you're not, let's say, having serotonin bleed out of your system and feeling in fits of despair. So again, tragedy plays upon a fundamental biological system that we have. The others, so let's go through those. We have thriller, horror, and uh, metaphysical and erotica. Thriller, I'm going to put on the fight out of the fight or flight or freeze or uh, let's say the last one also starts with F, which I'll get to it here in a moment. Uh, thriller is the fight out of the fight or flight, right? It's the excitement. It is the thing that gets the adrenaline pumping. It is the um, it, it's it's positive emotion, yes, but it's particular to that adrenal response. Um, and horror is just not the opposite per se, but it is the same idea with flight, right? It makes you want to flee, to run away, to move and hide. Um, and again, that's a fundamental human emotion that, that plays upon. Uh, it's it's something that I'm sure you can actually view with a brain scan and you could tell when you know someone's amygdala is disinhibited and they're experiencing horrific fear. Now, this one's perhaps going to be more confusing. I picked metaphysical because it was it's already a genre na named, right? It's already listed. And so I didn't want to come up with something new. What I mean by metaphysical or freeze is that feeling of the sublime when one is caught in awe. So works of fiction that are primarily, let's say, meant to give the reader a kind of spiritual experience or religious experience or awakening or to touch upon, let's say, their their instincts of self-transformation. You can think of this in a mythological sense. When someone, they get a noumenal experience, or numinous, I should say, not noumenal, numinous experience, that is a metaphysical work, right? That work is touching upon something that reaches all the way down to the fundamental uh, fundamentals of being itself, and it freezes us just like when we feel tiny and small compared to the grand vista of the mountain or the vast reaches of space. And 
that's freeze, right? And we do freeze in the face of danger when we feel ourselves being so insignificant. Now, the last one is erotica, right? And then, you know, if you've got children in the room, uh, perhaps remove them from the room because that is the sexual arousal response, the uh, the fuck response, right? The fourth F there. Um, that one doesn't really need much explaining, but a work of erotica is primarily there to play upon that particular biological system. And so we have genre summarized in this way, right? Genre is telos. That's a function, what it does to the writer, or sorry, not the writer, the reader. And the way it plays upon the reader is it plays upon the reader's biology. And, and therefore, we can have genre categories that are bound to those essential components of a living, breathing human being. And when we get to the end, I'm going to give an example of how we can tie those into the other elements in order to create a uh, a rather efficient way of categorizing our work so that we can really communicate to our readers like what, what we're actually writing about, right? Because I think a lot of the times things that get attributed to genre are actually attributable to plot and to setting mostly. And without further ado we'll move into plot. Now, what plot is, it's the narrative arc. It is the structure of a story. And what I've come to realize, or accept rather, is that all stories share a form that they vary in substance. Well, what that means is that for a story to be a story, it has to have the shape of it, even though the individual component parts can be different. This is sort of like a tree, right? Um, the form of a tree is what fundamentally makes it a tree to a human being. Now, you can have something that you could argue like, okay, well, um, genetically, this is technically a tree, even though it doesn't look like or function or do anything like a tree. But then at that point, we're playing semantic games and the name tree is no longer useful in the context of being a human being. So what I'm arguing here is that there is a particular form of narrative arc. This is essentially Freytag's triangle and all stories will play upon this structure, though there is going to be differences within that structure. Now, um, you can think of it as one plot form, but many plot types, depending on the nature of the conflict. Now, that's really important to think about is plot is centered around a conflict. It doesn't matter because if you don't have a conflict, you don't have a plot, what you have is a series of events with no tension. Why is tension important? Because tension is what drives the reader to continue reading. A story that doesn't have any tension is naturally uh, boring and disengaging and repulsive to a reader. So in order to have a plot that functions, um, it must have a structure that includes in it a conflict around which tension can be generated and expended. And I really only came with a few different types for this. Um, I'm sure there are more. I don't think the my list here is exhaustive. But it, it seems to me that plots are rather, uh, there's a lot of overlap across stories, probably because conflicts are only of a few real key nature. I have here um, action and adventure as one, hero's journey as another. Now you can obviously see overlap there. Mystery and romance are the other two. I'm sure I'm leaving uh, plot types out. Uh, please leave in the comments if you're over on YouTube, any other plot types that you think fit in here. Now, here's why I picked out these four. So 
Action and adventure is an overcoming of others or external obstacles. It's its primary, um, let's say, conflict, right? The, the conflict is centered around, do the protagonist overcome some external threat or achieve some external goal? And I separated that out from the hero's journey because the hero's journey is always in overcoming of self, right? The point of the journey is that the hero transforms across the journey. So the obstacles, even though there are external obstacles, fundamentally, the story is about the internal obstacles. The conflict is the internal conflict more than it is the external conflict. Um, Hero's journeys also tend to be those coming-of-age stories. And that makes sense because the coming of age means one is transitioning from childhood to adulthood or um, from being like not good enough to good enough, whatever it is. And so naturally, we're going to see uh, internal conflict be the centerpiece. Now, mystery is a little bit different because obviously with a mystery story, you're going to say, well, how is that different from external, you know, overcoming external obstacles with action and adventure? Well, what I find to be fundamentally different with the mystery is it's about an unanswered question. And if that question were to be answered, the story would necessarily end. Like right there, the story would be over. How is that different than action and adventure? Well, let's say that you have, I don't know, a Conan the Barbarian story. And a Conan doesn't really need to transform as a character. He, he typically doesn't, not within a story. He perhaps does so across stories, but that's a different thing. So within the story, he's not going on a hero's journey, but he is uh, battling against, um, you know, ancient godlike creatures and different uh, peoples and corrupt kings and uh, other barbarians and whatnot, wild animals. And while he's doing that, um, you're not really questioning whether Conan will achieve victory. It's guaranteed. The question is actually already answered. Yes, Conan is going to win. That's what's going to happen. You can say perhaps the question is how, uh, and that is kind of a question, but fundamentally you are watching him overcome those external obstacles. Whereas with a mystery, if you were to say, is Conan going to overcome? If it was a mystery story and you said yes, then there would be no point in reading. That's what makes it different. So like you think of the whodunit uh, stories where the whole point of the book is to figure out, well, who did the murder or who stole whatever it was that was stolen. And if you answer that question prematurely, if you have a mystery novel and it answers that, let's say three quarters of the way through the book, perhaps you've seen this, uh, the last quarter of the book just drags because it turns itself into an action adventure book, but it was never set up for that. And so it it makes the last, you know, the, the tail end of the story not very, uh, let's say, engaging. The tension has all been spent once you answer that question. So that's why I think mystery deserves its own plot type because it, it 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 its tension is all bound up in that particular question in a way that the other plot types, um, you know, you could spoil the answer to that question and it doesn't spoil the tension of the story. The last is romance. So that's the forming or maintaining of a relationship. And I want to extend romance beyond uh, just sexual relationships. I actually think this plot type would apply to any form of a relationship between two or more characters. When the, the tension of the story is drawn in the, uh, let's say, the forming or the maintaining of these relationships and you know, it's whether or not those relationships work or whether they're falling apart that builds attention. That's really what uh, a romance story is. You know, it doesn't really matter if the characters are 
overcoming some other obstacles. Sometimes in romance stories, it really doesn't matter too much if certain characters do or not overcome internal external conflict. What matters is what happens with the relationship between them. So the tension is and the conflict are tied up between characters rather than being outside or inside characters necessarily. Not to say that any of these are mutually exclusive, but we could say that certain ones are more, um, let's say, primary than others in a given work. And those are my plot types that I want to list out. And you would pair those with genre in order to describe your work, and we'll get to that eventually. We'll spend a little bit of time, though, in point of view and perspective. This is going to be perhaps the least important to our categorization, but I wanted to mention it since uh, I had an excellent conversation with author Molly B about this one. So this is going to be a little bit academic, and this my views on this have not changed, but I think they would be useful for you guys to hear. So first of all, if you're an author out there, you really, really, really need to understand that point of view and narrative perspective are not the same thing. They are not. One refers to where the narrator is located, and the other is uh, more about who the narrator is. We'll start with point of view. Point of view is where the narrator is, right? So is the narrator outside of the story? Is the narrator, uh, let's say, in this story, uh, is the narrator talking directly to you, or is the narrator conveying information to you about a third party, right? Um, and you can think of it this way. I think it's Matthew Vollmer or Volner. I, I always forget his name. I apologize. But um, he came and spoke when I was at grad school. And he told us this. And it was excellent. So first person, point of view, is one person talking, right? So that is the character uh, in the story talking about the direct events, right? So one person talking. Second person is one person, that's the first person, talking about you, the second person. That's why it's called that, right? So now we have two people involved, the narrator and you. Third person is one person, that's the first person, talking to you, you're the second person, about a third person or a third party, right? And that's why there's a level of distance when it comes to the third person uh, point of view. Now, those also break apart into omniscient, limited, and objective. Some of those are naturally attributable to the first, second, or third person. We'll leave second out because it's very, very rare and not worth most people's time. But in first person, um, unless your character is literally some type of omniscient god, you're never going to have an omniscient point of view. The first person point of view is always going to be either uh, limited or or limited plus objective. And we'll get into what objective is here in a second. Uh, it doesn't, it's not exclusive from the other two. Um, so limited means that you're only referencing the awareness and the thoughts and knowledge of a particular character, uh, a particular, you know, in the first person uh, point of view, it's going to be the, um, the, the narrator and usually ends up being the, the protagonist as well. Now, in third, you typically see a larger array of options. You can have a third-person narrator who is omniscient, which means they know the thoughts and feelings of all the characters and every and all the events. There is no limit to where the, um, to use a modern term, the camera can go. Um, now, what's also popular is third limited. This is, gives you a bit of psychic distance, but it lets you, let's say, describe the world only conveying to the reader's information from one particular character's point of view. This lets you hide things from the reader when you need to um, in a way that feels natural. 
it brings the reader a little closer to that particular character and, and brings them closer to the thought, their particular thoughts and feelings. Um, it lets you color the way the narrator narrates and talks. It affects your style of prose in a sense when you have a third limited narrator. Um, and we also have objective. So what objective means, this could be omniscient or limited, but it means that there is no subjectivity being imposed in the writing. This isn't really possible in English 100%, but the idea is whether it's a first-person perspective or third, and usually objective is third for obvious reasons here in a second. Things are described, but they are not judged. So if you have a villain shoot someone, it's just described they did that action. It's not, you know, that they did it in a particularly wicked or evil way. The uh, narrator is not judging morally the uh, the actions of the characters. That's what makes a particular type of narration objective. You could do that in first person, where the first person narrator merely describes what's happening and does not get, uh, let's say, judgy about it, does not describe how they feel about it, does not use particularly emotionally evocative language. However, um, that is more difficult to pull off because people do not speak this way, and it might, it very well is likely to make your narrator come off as um, not believable as a character within the work. Uh, I'm sure there are ways to do this, depending on you know the reliability of your narrator and their mental stability. Perhaps you're showing them to be a psychopath or something, and you can get it to work that way. Uh, but for the most part, objective is relegated to third uh, om omniscient or even third limited. Now, that's point of view. That's where the narrator is. In the story, outside of the story, um, narrative perspective is who the narrator is, which determines what gets narrated and how. This is where all your subjectivity comes in. So if you have a particular narrator, narrator say they're a first-person narrator, um, they're only going to focus on particular events, particular words that are said, right? Because when we're writing a story, we don't tell you, we tell you everything. We only tell you this small, limited amount. Um, the camera can only be on one spot at a time, and it's actually more restrictive with prose. You can only really write one word at a time, one sentence at a time. And so what you choose to describe in what order and to what depth is determined by the values and interest of your narrator, right? So just by writing words on the page, you're communicating something about the character of the narrator. And remember, the narrator is a character fundamentally, even if it's a omniscient third person godlike character who knows everyone's thoughts. They still have, essentially, they will still convey some form of values unless you go all the way into objective, in which case they're just describing events and trying not to judge it. But what, even then, what you choose to describe shows what is important to that narrator. And so when you have a particular narrator, whether, you know, doesn't matter what point of view you end up going with with your story, your story kind of dictates what's usually best, though it can vary. Um, when you do that, remember that what you're describing is dependent on who is telling the story. They're going to notice certain things. They're not going to notice other things. They're going to value certain things and describe them with more depth. They're going to use particular types of language, right? If they think something is morally repugnant or disgusting, you'll see their particular word choice change. If they like the thing or have a bias toward it, their word uh, choice will change again. Their diction will uh, become suddenly more positive. They'll use thicker words, thicker meaning having more uh, meanings, usually uh, moral judgments laden in them. All right, so that's point of view and perspective. Moving out of that back into setting, or not back into setting, into setting. Uh, so 
to say it simply, this is when and where the story takes place. But I think setting, we could think of it in greater depth than that. And the reason why is that a lot of things that normally get attributed to genre, I think, are actually attributable to setting, which I think is cool because setting, you know, if you go pick up an academic textbook, they don't really give it much time or effort. They just kind of throw it out there and say, yep, it's time and place, and then they move on. But I want to lay out what I think are the possible, uh, let's say, categories of setting that help us understand how setting affects the rest of a work. So the first three I'm going to call historical, contemporary, and speculative. Um, And these all assume that the setting is set in our world, our existence, right? So if it's historical, it's our history, somewhere in our history. If it's contemporary, it's right now, whenever it was written, obviously. So the the author's understanding of his or her contemporary uh, world. And then speculative, this is where, or what I should say, we would normally call science fiction. Now, why am I pairing science fiction and speculation? Well, after having an excellent conversation um, with Michael H., uh, also called Eternus, you can find him over on Minds. He's got some excellent science fiction fiction. Um, what speculative fiction fundamentally is, is a change in the setting of a story that then analyzes how that affects the actions of characters in the in the world. And, and so essentially... What makes it speculative is that most of reality in a speculative fiction story stays how it would be, except you change some component of it. Now, typically what we see this is a change in technology, and this kind of happens naturally, right? Because when we're thinking about the future, we have to speculate because the future hasn't happened yet. And so we see, okay, well, here's a story about how technology changes the future. What does this do to the way mankind relates? to one another? What does it do to his relationship with nature? What does it do to, you know, his philosophical and religious thought, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So naturally, science fiction is essentially set in this, it's the same idea as historical or contemporary, but it's speculative in nature, right? It's talking about the future. And as opposed to the historical, contemporary, and speculative fiction settings that you could use, we have uh, settings that are fantastical. So what this means is now we are departing from the fundamental realities of our real lives, and we are imposing a kind of fantasy universe. Now, this fantasy universe can have a lot in common with ours, or it could have very little. But I think that it's a fundamental difference in in setting, because once you start to change the fundamental nature of, let's say, physics by introducing something that we essentially have to call magic, uh, that we couldn't explain as being a scientific, um, let's say, innovation, then all of a sudden that that really changes the fundamental nature of how the theme is conveyed in the story. And we'll get to that when we get to theme. Now, under fantastical, under fantasy, uh, I have a few subcategories. And there again, there's going to be more, but I think this is quite useful. So we have classic fantasy. So that's, when we say the word fantasy, uh, oftentimes what gets evoked is classic fantasy, right? So this is um, an entirely fantastical universe, oftentimes based on our real life universe, but uh, isn't it fundamentally. I'm going to call that classic fantasy because when we say the word fantasy, that's what people think. Now, we also have things like urban fantasy. Now, urban is a little bit of a misnomer, but like I said, I'm trying not to reinvent the wheel here. Urban fantasy is fundamentally 
a contemporary setting, usually contemporary setting, but with a fundamental uh, aspect of the nature of reality changed in it. So usually the introduction of magic into a contemporary setting. Now we have science fantasy, and that is essentially uh, it being in the future, and there being also, again, these fundamentally changing fantastical elements that make it not spe- uh, science fiction and make it not speculative because once you introduce the fantastical element, you're not speculating about um, a what if, you know, changing one element of the setting. What you're doing is you're now creating an entirely different world uh, with with different rules in it. And so that's fantastical as opposed to scientific in a sense. So science fantasy, science denotes future. Perhaps we could call it speculative fantasy. Um, either way, the point is that it is fantastical in nature. Um, and there's one more I'll get to here in a moment. But you can see the correspondence between the historical, contemporary, and speculative. We have classic fantasy, usually that takes place at some time in the past. So mythology is essentially classical fantasy. Um, Tolkien is classical fantasy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can kind of see how that works. Um, Contemporary, uh, you can think of something like Harry Potter is like urban fantasy, even though it takes place mostly in a castle out in Scotland uh, in the middle of nowhere. It does take place in a modern world where magic is introduced. Uh, Star Wars is essentially science fantasy. They have you know, futuristic. It's funny because Star Wars is, uh, you know, it says, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But for all intents and purposes, it might as well be in the future because they're speculating on something that would have to be produced um, for us in the future. But there's also magic in this universe. And when they say a long time ago, we have to remember that it's not our a long time ago. It's whatever the Star Wars universe a long time ago is, which could very well still be very much in the future for us. Now, we have one more category under fantastical, and that is alternative history. And the reason why I think it belongs in the fantastical is because once you, perhaps alternative history or speculative history might be a good example. And maybe this is like a blending of the two. Maybe it doesn't belong as a subset of fantastical. It's like between. But when you go back in history and you say, okay, let's change these events, it has that speculative aspect to it. But then the change in events or the introduction of a an element that was not present, um, it really fundamentally changes what goes forward out of that. Now, the Perhaps I could have a, a dual nature, or we could have like an alternative history, and that would belong to the the first three categories. But we could have a kind of um, I don't know, almost like historical classic fantasy, combining the idea of introducing magic into history, and then seeing what changes there, um, because that's going to the change. Once you introduce something akin to magic, what you're doing is you're introducing something that does not follow the rules of our our existence, and then therefore is going to be fundamentally different. So that one perhaps should be split into two, but you can see the idea that these are all settings and fundamentally the the differences, the divides are among, let's say, something close to our reality and the past, present, or future, or something that deviates from our reality, past, present, or future, and that's going to affect the way the story is told. All right, and that is setting. Uh, Let's move on to character. Now, with character, we have the symbolic actors and agents of a story. I really want to focus on that, right? Because when we look at the meaning of the word character, characters, like in a a word, are the individual letters uh, or symbols in a pictographic language that then represent 
um, greater meanings when combined together. Characters in a story are not different than that. And I think people get confused. We have to remember that a character on the page is not a person. We are, again, this. I got this uh, talking to, to Michael, uh, to Eternus. They, we're not making realistic characters. We are making believable characters, characters with high degrees of verisimilitude, depending on their use in the story. And that's because they are pieces um, of a whole person that we are showing certain facets at a time, certain sides of a person at a time. We can't ever in fiction show a whole, even in nonfiction for that matter, it doesn't matter. You can't show a whole person because you can't describe a whole person at once. And also because of the constraints of plot that we mentioned before, you don't have the time and space to do that, right? You can only describe things that are relevant to the plot or to the development of the character that then is going to relate to the development of the plot in some way, shape, form, or another. Um, and so what am I saying here? I'm saying that a character is always a symbol. A character is not a person. A character is a representation of an aspect or many aspects of a person. And what kind of characters are there? Where, Well, uh, academically speaking, we have the typical four types. So we have flat, round, static, and dynamic. Um, flat and round um, are not mutually exclusive from static and dynamic, uh, though they are each exclusive from each other. So a flat character is by defi definition not a round character, and a static character is by definition not dynamic. We'll go from simple to complex. So a flat character, these are tertiary or stock characters. These are characters that are often unnamed, and the key thing to think about them is they're definable by being representative of one or two key aspects of uh, a person. This can be someone's profession. This can be one particular emotion, uh, you know, a character that is essentially functions to just be angry all the time or, uh, or to always be sad, always be happy, something like that. Uh, but they don't really have an interior life. Um, at the very least, one is not explored in the story and it's not really relevant to the story. And so it never, it never gets mentioned. It doesn't come up as significant. Um, that's a flat character. They're, they're like background pieces, right? These are your extras in a, in a movie um, versus a round character as more complex, right? So these are going to be your protagonist and also oftentimes your secondary characters get a bit of roundness to them. They're certainly rounder than uh, flatter stock characters or, or tertiary characters that are essentially names and perhaps descriptions. These round characters, therefore, are multifaceted. They have many faces. Um, and this means they are more representative of a whole person. They still aren't an entire person, but you will see uh, a greater depth to their character. They're going to have individual interests and wants and needs uh, that are going to be apparent in the story, things that they're pursuing. Um, they're trying to fulfill their desires. They're trying to avoid their aversions. Um, and oftentimes, their desires and aversions are in contradiction with one another, um, certainly with other characters in the story, um, oftentimes in ways that are complex, right? So some, some aspects of a character are in conflict and some are in cooperation. And because of that, it feels much more like a whole person because we as people are not, you know, flat. We are rather round. We have many and different contradictory feelings, desires, wants, needs, aims, ambitions. Um, we have complex relationships with one another rather than simple, you know, relationships that are 
attributable to a single title. They're usually attributable to multiple titles, right? Um, so yeah, round characters as your protagonist, they have more about them that you know pull the, that the reader can uh, sympathize with. Now we also have static and dynamic. Uh, these are rather simple. So static characters don't change during the plot arc anyway. Um, now flat, static characters are usually flat, but not always. There are characters who are round that don't change um, across a story. These are, you know, if you have a very, very plot-driven story as opposed to a character-driven story, oftentimes you can get away with a static protagonist and it doesn't cause any problems at all. Um, because that protagonist necessarily will be round, so there will be a lot of interest to them. Uh, this story will just focus mostly on the plot. Dynamic characters, on the other hand, um, these characters, what's interesting is they're often around, but they're not always, uh, because a dynamic character changes over the course of a plot. Now, oftentimes when a character is going to be shown to change, um, as you're showing the change, you're going to have to show many aspects of that character to make the change believable. And so they're often around, but it is possible that a character, a flat character in the background flips sides and changes um, over the course of a story. And it kind of happens in the background. Um, and those characters are also dynamic because they evolve over time. The important aspect to understand with flat, round, static, and dynamic characters is whether or not your story is primarily character-driven, or is the conflict centered inside the characters or in the relationships, right? So if you have like a romance story um, or a hero's journey, you're really going to want dynamic characters. If you don't have dynamic characters and um, perhaps more round than flat characters, the tension is going to bleed out of your story because they're not going to be believable, which means if you know I don't buy in I, or if I'm not sympathetic with the characters, I don't care what happens to them, so the conflict becomes irrelevant. Um, if, however, you have a very plot-driven story, you can get away with flatter characters or more flat characters in your story because it's what's happening that's more important. The uh, the plot, the, the conflict is centered on the outside and externals um, as opposed to internals, right? Um, and therefore, you can also get away with more static characters, because what really matters isn't does this character transform, but does this character overcome the obstacle? You can even do this with mysteries, right? The detective in the mystery does not have to transform. He can be completely static. And a lot of the characters actually can be stock characters, because in a mystery, what matters is who done it, right? Like, you know, solving the, the mystery, the clues, and it leading the reader along. So you can see how stories are plot or character centric and um, character centric stories are more in internal. These are hero's journeys and uh, romances, action adventure stories or mysteries tend to be uh, more flat and static uh, because all the complexity is wrapped up in the plot as opposed to inside the characters. And now this all runs down to the theme. Um, I think I'm going to be short about this. I have a whole essay on my website, wildiolit.com. Uh, if you heard that loud snapping in the background, by the way, that was a, a bug zapper. I have to save me from the evil insects. So yeah, go over to my website and uh, you know check out my stuff to, to keep me alive and eating so I can move out of this evil dwelling cave of an apartment. But back to the podcast, right? So theme. The theme is a thesis of a work. You can read the essay uh, theme as meta narrative over my essay section. I wrote that years ago, and it still stands up to this day. I would argue. Why do I think that theme is the thesis? Well, they share the same roots. If you look up the etymology, and if you 
try to draw out a work's theme, what you find is that you can do it by looking at the symbols and looking at the meta narrative that they compose. Now, I want to make sure that we understand the difference between theme and motif. Um, Textbooks do not do a good job of articulating this at all. If you guys listen to my conversation with Fallon from Fallon Edits, um, it's one of the other writing casts, you'll know that different uh, authors and lecturers and editors and you know readers use these words interchangeably. Uh, I am going to argue because of the etymology of the word theme that it is it's in common with thesis and motif is merely... Uh, essentially repeated symbols that contribute to the theme, but the theme itself is a thesis. If you know anything about a thesis statement, it is a complete articulated thought that has a claim. It is saying that something is true about the world. And in a work of fiction, you are creating a story that when we apply order abstraction, which I'll explain in a second, um, creates a second narrative on top of the, uh, I'll say, literal narrative in the story that is an abstract lesson or a moral. So essentially, you know, you know what a fable is, you know, that a fable teaches you a lesson. Well, technically speaking, every story teaches a lesson. Now, some stories teach more uh, profound lessons than others. Some stories try to teach lessons and claim falsehoods, right? Which makes sense because you can have something like a false claim. Um, if you think of a story that's essentially a propaganda piece, that's what that is. So how do you understand what the theme of a work is? Now, I'm going to say that this is done by order abstraction. So there's first, second, and third order. And what these are are categorizations, fundamentally. So um, getting a little bit uh, platonic about it, uh, you know, Plato, we have the thing itself, right? So that is the object as it most fundamentally is, not the thing in itself, which I think was his like realm of forms, but like the objective, the object. Now, we don't experience the object. That's the noumena, if you want to use Kant's terms, which I do like a little bit better. We experience phenomena. So we experience shadows on the wall, most fundamentally. Now, that's the first order of abstraction, right? Because Again, my eyes don't directly see the cactus on my desk. My eyes see, um, let's say, light reflected off of that, and then an image is generated in my brain. And uh, the same thing with all the colors and all the attributes about it. And if I touch it, it's the same way with the um, sensory organs and nerves in my skin, right? So I don't get direct experience. I get experience filtered through um, my biological apparatuses or apparati. I don't know how to pluralize that. Um, that give me a shadow. But I'm talking about the particular cactus on my desk. There's also the second order of abstraction, the like, cacti, right? The idea that there is a category of plant, uh, plant itself being a second order abstraction, right? That I call a cactus. Um, so what that means is I'm referring to a type of first order abstraction. So there's the cactus on my desk. That is first uh, cacti, uh, you know, the idea of a cactus, uh, not a particular cactus, just but of the general category, that's second. And where we get theme from is when we move up to third. So you can tell now I'm, I've been talking about denotations, but when we get to third order abstraction, we're talking about connotations, we're talking about associations. A cactus is a thing which survives in hostile conditions. Right, that's what we think of. When we think of cactus. Now, all, not all cacti actually do, but when you say the word cactus, that's what comes to mind. They're generally speaking plants that survive in dry, arid, hostile conditions. They're plants that uh, are prickly and spiny that hold lots of water. Um, they are green. Um, 
they you know some of them have fruit and flowers but not all of them but so that's not perhaps fundamental to a cactus but the idea is it's like this prickly plant that exists in a dry arid area so a prick a thing that's prickly a thing that survives where other things die that's third order abstraction um and if you wanted to to run an example of this right um let's use edgar Allan poe's the mask of red death so if i ask what's the theme of the mask of red death well literally the red death is the symbol of death we have the party goers who are trying to hide from death um and what they do is they lock the gates shut and they try to distract themselves from the fact that death is out there and it's coming for them um through indulgence and through you know degenerate partying in this uh macabre essentially manor house and what ends up happening is that death will find you anyway and it doesn't matter whether you have a masquerade and you're hiding your face and you're all getting drunk and uh perhaps having like orgies in some back room because i'm sure they would eventually death will come in and it comes for us all and it's just a matter of time as they know because every uh, time the the clock strikes i think it's midnight in the mask of red death everyone stops maybe it's just every hour everyone stops and is reminded of the fact that they are in they are in fact mortal that they actually cannot escape death so death is inescapable is the theme of the mask of red death that's a complete statement and it's a statement about the truth and it's showing that by showing that even though they took every measure they could to hide themselves away from the disease, the disease yet found them because that disease finds us all because the disease is not a particular disease. It is death itself. And that's what theme is, right? I mentioned before um, about speculative fiction really quickly. I'm not going to go too deeply into this because I want to have a conversation about it, especially is how theme is conveyed um, through speculative fiction and how it is conveyed to conveyed through what I'll call archetypal fiction. So I mentioned before that speculative fiction changes a particular element of the setting, and then you see what happens as a consequence to the uh, the plot and the characters. Um, and the change in consequences is going to change the symbols. Changing the symbols is going to change what that story argues is true. That's, I think, what speculative fiction is in classic science fiction does that right it's like okay well if we introduce this does it change the theme do we learn something about the world um, particularly about how the world and the environment affects us as as human beings existing in this life whereas archetypal fiction uh so i want to say that uh, speculative fiction is descriptive i think archetypal fiction is more typical of fantasy and i think it teaches us something more about uh, ourselves, but I also think it's more prescriptive, right? It's more about the moral actions. If, uh, you know, regardless of the, the setting, really, you know, because this could be an alternative world or our world, which is why I think this is typical of fantasy. If you take particular actions, uh, moral actions in particular circumstances, the result will be this, and therefore you should do this if, if you know you want these good results. I think that's fundamentally archetypal fiction, and you can see that you get different angles of communicating the theme. One coming from the change of the, let's say, the environment and how that affects people, and then also a change in moral action on on the other side. So. That's something closely related to theme that I want to talk about in the near future. Um, and you guys will have to let me know what you think of that. Now, before we end, I want to give an example because I mentioned before, way at the beginning when I talked about genre, 
that I wanted this to serve a function. I wanted us to be able to talk about our fiction and actually be able to describe it to other readers. So I picked out three different works um, because they were different enough that we'd cover different parts of this. And I'll give a rundown about how we could categorize them using the literary analysis that I laid out above, which, as you notice, isn't really that different. I want to I want to point this out here uh, in case anyone thinks I'm trying to reinvent the wheel, right, and and destroy everything that came before. No, 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 that is not what I'm doing. Um, what I am trying to do is apply essentially uh, a Confucian principle of using the true names of things, the proper way of describing. Uh, what we're looking at in this case, literature, so that our thoughts about literature uh, are built up on a truth, um, so they're not built up on shifting sands that collapse underneath us. Uh, you know, essentially just revisiting the ideas that we've had before, keeping what works, um, finding what arbitrary slop got added to the mix, and letting that sift itself out. So here are three examples, and you can tell me if you think that this, uh, I hate to call it a systemization, but for lack of a better word, the system of, of literary analysis is uh, useful. So let's start with Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. So I'm going to say that Romeo and Juliet is a tragic, that's the um, genre, right? Historical romance. So historical um, is in reference to the setting, so it's historical fiction, uh, and the plot type is romance. Now, it's setting. It's set in Verona, Italy, and I don't know the exact date, so I couldn't find that, but that's the idea. So, tragic historical romance set in Verona, Italy. Uh, the protagonists are the star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet. I'm not going to go into that because you guys know that and you can look at it yourself, but the theme, now here's where I think uh, I can contribute something. The theme is that one or a couple bring about his, or they, I guess, they their own tragic end when he does not embody the courage to speak forthrightly about how he feels. Now, that's a weird take on Romeo and Juliet for most of you if you've read literary analysis in school. But the reason why I make that argument um, is because uh, there's a ton of occasions in Romeo and Juliet where if either of them were just to have been open about the fact like, hey, we're in love and we got married, uh, it probably would have brought peace to the two families, right? So let me think of all the characters that uh, wouldn't have gotten killed. Paris wouldn't have gotten killed because the the Capulets would have known that, okay, well, our daughter's already married. We can't promise her to you now. And we have to deal with the situation that we're in. Uh, the father probably would not be all that upset with Juliet about it. Uh, he might be upset, but he was like super doting on her. So uh, she could have swayed him very easily. And that was set up in the story. Uh, Mercutio and Tybalt would still be alive because the reason that they died was because Romeo did not tell them that he had buried Juliet and therefore could not any more fight with Tybalt, and so then Mercutio gets killed, and then Romeo kills Tybalt in response. So that whole thing could have been avoided. If that would have been avoided, Romeo wouldn't have been banished. Um, and the whole accident with the uh, the poison and the suicide with the dagger, like none of that would have happened if they had just said, "Hey." Uh, we got married and we're doing that now. It's very likely that two houses would have ended their fighting with, uh, let's say, love instead of tears. Um, that's my argument for the theme, the argument that Romeo and Juliet brings. And you can apply that to your life thinking, if you just try and sneak around and make everything secret rather than saying how you really feel, um, you end up facilitating a greater disaster that uh, than you otherwise would have needed to do to get past whatever obstacle you're facing. Um, in this case, it's communicated through this tragic historical romance set in Verona, Italy. Um, so that is 
Shakespeare. What about Lovecraft? Because I love Lovecraft, and I actually wrote an essay about this, uh, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. I'm going to describe this as a metaphysical hero's journey, um, and, and it's essentially it's a classic fantasy, though we would in modern day call it a cosmic fantasy, um, and it's set in the dream world of Lovecraft's mythos. Um, so you can see metaphysical, that is the genre, right? Because it has to deal with uh, existential feelings, right? There is this place that uh, Randolph Carter, the protagonist, wants to achieve that is the ideal and the the promised land, the paradise, right? It's essentially heaven. And that's what makes this philosophical or metaphysical rather, because it's dealing with, you know, it, the human being achieving that end, which is most, um, you know, valuable to them as of highest value. That's the same thing as someone is contemplating their eternal soul going to heaven or hell. That's why I say it's metaphysical. It plays on the same emotions. It's a hero's journey because Randolph Carter um, has to overcome, let's say, weaknesses in himself over and over and over again in order to make a realization at the end that really he was in his own, own way the whole time. It wasn't the external world um, keeping him from the thing that he was seeking. It was himself. And I'm describing this classic fantasy because in this, you know, cosmic fantasy or cosmic horror, in a way, this story is not really cosmic horror uh, as much as Lovecraft's other stories. This is more of a, you know, sprawling fantasy adventure. Uh, the setting is that the dream world is a fantasy world, and it's not like our own. Uh, we're not in the real world like we are in most of Lovecraft's settings, so that's why I describe it that way. Uh, I already mentioned the protagonist, Randolph Carter, um, and the theme, uh, I mentioned it, is that the promised land, the idealized state of being and pla uh, place of being, is actually achieved through self-transformation and an acceptance that it is already within the self, right? Because he faces off against um, Neralithotep at the end and realizes, wait a minute, I already have the Sunset City, and then he you know, accepts that he is already where he needed to be the whole time, that's self-acceptance, um, and that is how he achieves his metaphysical happiness, right? So that we have... We have the dream quest for Unknown Kadoth played through in this system. Now, this one, uh, I'm cheating a little bit. I've seen the film, but and I have the book. I have not had time to read the book, unfortunately, um, is Starship Troopers. And I really do want to read this book. Um, the film was excellent, and as far as I can tell, Highline's philosophy is also excellent. Um, but I know enough about the plot, and if I get something wrong, please let me know in the comments below if you're over on YouTube. If I get something wrong about this, but I think I can categorize it, right? So I... Now, the order is going to be different because of the way that we use these words, but it's going to use the same systemization. So Starship Troopers is an action-adventure speculative thriller. Okay, so action-adventure is going to be the plot type. Uh, primarily, this is about uh, these characters overcoming um, an external threat as opposed to an internal one. Um, it's speculative because it's science fiction, right? It's placed in the future speculating about, as, you know, what if this series of events happened and then we were invaded by aliens. It's a thriller because it's very much uh, focused on evoking that, you know, the high octane, you know, fist pumping action. I think right at the very beginning of the story, because I did try and read it, I just didn't have time. Uh, that famous line, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Come on, you apes. Do you want to live forever? Something like that. Like you, you can, it's like 
you know, if you're a soldier, you're getting pumped up, ready to go to war and die, right? So I'm going to describe that as a thriller because it plays upon that fight response. Like, yeah, let's go and do this. Uh, it's set on Earth and also in the far reaches of space. The protagonist is Juan Rico. Um, and the theme is uh, that moral order can be um, maintained only through duty, accountability, service, vigilance, and self-sacrifice, right? Because that is how they um, fight against the bugs through that, right? that people are taking responsibility that service guarantees citizenship and we only have been able to save earth insofar as we've uh, accepted these things and acted in accord with them uh, and so you see the external conflict play out but it does still communicate about um, something deeper an argument that is true about the world and that would be starship troopers right so you can see by listing out the genre, the plot, and the setting, those are the primary descriptors, we tell quite a bit about the story. Um, the The characters in particular, uh, they're not tertiary, but in terms of describing our work, for the most part, um, they, they require description all of their own. Um, apart from the what we normally do when we go to tell someone genre. So I think in place of genre, combining genre, plot, and setting, making sure that we understand what is what, will allow us to communicate much more effectively exactly what kind of story that we are dealing with. Uh, and I hope that those three examples proved it to you today. So these are my thoughts. This is the Wild Isle Crash Course, uh, the first of... Uh, probably not many, but certainly a few. I hope this was useful to you. Tell me what you think. Do you agree? Do you not agree? Do you think that some of my categories were a bit loose? Do you think that I missed out on something? Uh, yeah, please do let me know. Uh, if you did find this useful, I would really like it if you guys were to spread it around. Um, I've you know, really learned a lot from these conversations. Uh, go check out the original podcast. Let people know about this one. Uh, spread this stuff as far as it will go. Uh, and with that, you know, before we go, I'm going to shill again for you guys. So uh, if you want to check out more of my work, if you like this, go to wildiolit.com. Um, I've got my blog there. I've got essays. I've got stories and excerpts I've been po uh, posting. I'm going to start adding audio to as much stuff as I can. Uh, I've got my novel um, hosted there. I've got book reviews. I didn't mention those at the beginning of a bunch of indie authors. Uh, I'm constantly reading indie author stuff, trying to get as many reviews on there as I can. If you have a book that you'd like reviewed, if you're an indie author, like go ahead and you know send me a message in the contact form. Um, what else do I have? The other podcasts are also hosted there as well as any audiobooks. I, I should have mentioned this. I'm releasing my first book uh, for free, an audio version of it anyway, um, where I have my favorite villain, Dagoth. Or he's not really my favorite villain, but I like him a lot. Uh, and I like his voice a lot. And so I'm having uh, Eleven Labs using his voice generate the... Um, generate the first book chapter by chapter. We're almost at the end. I'm probably going to go back and clean up some of the audio files for uh, SoundCloud. So you'll get a little bit better audio, but they're on YouTube as well. Um, and also don't forget my Kickstarter campaign, please. I would really appreciate it if you guys at the very least were to go over there and share that link across various social media and uh, with your friends, with your family, let them know that uh, I'm trying to hire a couple artists to do the covers for a really a series of um, long story pairs. more like uh, novella pairings uh, so I can release those and get them out and uh, you know actually commission real human artists to do the covers 
I do all my promotionals with like AI art stuff. I know a lot of people hate that. And I don't want to do it for the actual covers of the book. I want something great um, that I can put out there. Um, and I'm also doing the little nobody stories uh, that's also getting funded through the Kickstarter because I'm going to have to commission a local artist to produce all of that. And I, I want to be able to help her uh, start out her career. I already have one piece of hers um, up, posted around. You'll see it. It's excellent. I think the whole book is going to come out great. Um, so please go check that out. Uh, my the Kickstarter link is, again, on my website, wildislit.com. Once you're on the Kickstarter page, you can find the share links. It makes it really easy. Thank you guys so much for joining me, and I will see you next time.